When, when I was 21, my friends and I had this great idea. We figured, what better way to celebrate turning 21 than going skydiving, all right? Throwing your body out of a perfectly good plane. But we said, just normal skydiving isn't dangerous enough. So let's not do it in Atlanta or Birmingham or Nashville where there's an established airport. Let's go to Pelham, Alabama and skydive. Now, really, the main reason we went to Pelham, I, I think it was about $100 cheaper to skydive in Pelham than anywhere else. And so, like mo most people who turned 21, we had a really good time. We stayed up pretty late. And so, when the time came, all right, to drive to the airport and make your appointment, I overslept. And I was running behind. And so, I'm in my car. I'm speeding towards this little airport. My friends are already there. And I showed up 30 minutes late. And so when I park my car into the parking lot, I get out, I see my friends, they've got their jumpsuits on, they've got their parachutes on their back, and they are walking to an airplane that has propellers moving and spinning. And so I run out of my car, and I run over to the guy who looked like he knew what he was doing. This guy was the jump master. And I said, sir, is there any way I can get on this airplane? I said, these are my friends, we planned this day, I gotta be on this airplane. And this guy looked at the plane, and he looked at me, he said, hold on one second. He came back with a jumpsuit. He said, put this on. So I put it on one leg at a time. He said, look, here's all you need to know. He said, can you put your hands up? And I went like this. And he goes, now stick your groin out. And so I went like this. And he said, you're good to go. All right, plane's taking off in one minute. <laughs> and so just like that, literally 90 seconds later, I'm on an airplane and we are cruising. All right, we're moving up into the air. All right, it's a silly story, but the point is this. Skydiving is really complicated, right? You are hopping into an airplane. You're going up to about 12,000 feet, and you're about to hurl your body outside of it. And you're going to free fall for over one minute. But in this moment, when I forced this guy to allow me on his plane, he had to make a split decision. He had to distill every bit of information. He had to boil it down, condense it to the bare bones, the absolute basics, the two things you have to know to survive skydiving. Well, in a similar way, that's what John is about to do for us this morning. He's about to summarize the whole book of 1 John. He's about to say, here's what you have to know. Here's the basics, the bare bones. He, he's going to give us the cliff notes, which you got to know not only all right, to be saved, but to walk with Jesus. So the passage we're looking at this morning is 1 John 5, 13 through 21. And, and if you pay attention, in verse 13 is really when the main body of this entire letter ends. And so what I'm going to preach on this morning is not new information. If you've been coming week in, week out, Andrew has expertly been walking through the book of 1 John. And so everything I'm preaching on it's going to be a summary. It's going to be a recap. You're not going to get anything new. But here's what I want you to pay attention to, the word no. Because in this section, the word no is repeated seven times, over and over and over again. Because what John is attempting to do as he wraps up this letter is he is reminding us of the main points. Here's, here's what he's saying. Here's, he's saying, here are the things you got to know. And just in the same way that I had to know two things to hop on this airplane, I couldn't just forget those two things, right? I couldn't just forget, keep my hands up and my groin out because I needed to remember that as the plane was ascending. I need to remember that as I'm about to jump off the plane. And John is saying the exact same thing. 
You've got to know these things not only to be saved. You've got to know these things not only to have a relationship with Christ. You also got to know these things each and every day. You got to know these things in the moments of life where it feels like you're just cruising. But also in the moments of life where you feel like it's a free fall, you've got to remember these things. You've got to know these things. So read with me as we talk this morning about the five things you have to know to walk with God. I'm going to start in verse 13. John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So I mentioned this earlier, we get the word no seven times in this passage. And here's what we're going to focus on. I condensed it down to five things, five things you have to know to walk with God. Well, what's the first one? The first thing you have to know is that we have eternal life. We have eternal life. This is in verse 13. John says, you may know that you have eternal life. Now, do you understand what John is saying? He's saying, look, I don't just want you to think feel, wish, or hope this. I want you to know it, have assurance, be confident of this. And the whole purpose of the book of 1 John is that the author, John, wants us to be sure of our salvation. More specifically, God the Father wants us to, be, wants us to know. He wants us to be sure that he is committed to us. Do you know that there's actually people in the church who think otherwise? There's actually people in the church that think it's actually dangerous or a bad thing to know that you have assurance of salvation. They would actually suggest that it's good to have a lack of assurance. Because when you lack assurance, they would say, that will keep you in line. You'll start to act right and you won't get lazy in your Christian life. But do you see what John is saying? He's saying the exact opposite. He's saying when you know God's commitment to you, when you're sure of your salvation, it leads to peace, it leads to strength, and it leads to love. And there's a reason for that because God is a good father. So just in the same way that I'm a father to my daughter, this semester I've traveled on the weekend several times. I've been traveling with our football team. And I would never pull out Ellie, can't even get her name right, pull Ellie aside, sit her on my knee, And say, Ellie, I'm going to Valdosta, Georgia this weekend. And I might not come back. I I might come back tomorrow or it might be Sunday. 
When I hop on this bus, you might not ever see me again. I'm leaving, and it might be a month, it might be a year, or I might not ever come back. If that's how I communicated with her, it would lead to a lack of assurance. It would lead to confusion. It would lead to anxiety. In the same way, I don't want my daughter to functionally live and operate as an orphan. The question is, why would God? All right, God is committed. He is devoted to enabling us to feel a real sense of assurance for our salvation. And so the whole purpose of this book is John is deliberating, writing to give us assurance for our relationship with God. And John says the real source of our assurance, it's not a prayer we've prayed. It's not an emotional feeling. It's not how regularly and faithfully you attend church. It's not the level of theology that you possess. It's this. Do you believe in the Son of God? In other words, do you trust in Jesus? If you trust in Jesus today with your whole life, you can have assurance of your salvation. That's point number one. God wants us to know that we have eternal life. Point number two is this, that God answers prayer. Now, I warned you already, guys, you're not getting new, new information. But God answers prayer. Verse 15 says this, is that he hears us in whatever we ask. And here's the connection. See, when we have assurance of our relationship with God, we become confident children, And if you're a confident and bold child, how do you approach your parents? Well, you ask them for things because you're certain. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your parents are committed to you. And so here's the thing. John is not only the author of 1 John. He's also the author of the Gospel of John. And when you combine both these books, you have some of the most clear, concise statements of bold and confident prayer. Two verses come to mind, and this is Jesus speaking. John 15, 7 says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The second is this, John 14, 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so this passage in 1 John is simply building, reinforcing what Jesus has already said in the Gospel of John. But when we look at Jesus' words, we realize there are some qualifications for our prayer life. The first is this. Jesus says, I'll do whatever you want as long as you what? You abide in me. Therefore, it's really crucial that we know what abiding in Jesus looks like. Well, abiding simply means this. It's a daily, personal relationship with Jesus. It means I'm consistently trusting, walking, and obeying Jesus. But Christ also says this, not only should you abide in me, you should also pray in my name. Y'all heard that before? So this leads to a question, what does it really mean to pray in Jesus' name? I mean, does it mean this? I really am hoping I get a new truck for Christmas. So can I just pray a prayer right now, now and say, Jesus, give me a 2018 truck in your name and it's gonna be waiting for me in the parking lot? Is that what it means? I mean, very often we treat in Jesus' name simply as a way to end your prayer, right? It's formality. It's punctuation. It's like an emoji in a text. It's just the right way you end a prayer. 
Well, I think Jesus says praying in his name means something a little different. Because here's what you got to understand, especially in the Old Testament, names had a lot of significance. They had meaning. And so your name represented the very character and the values of your family. And so here's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It means we pray in a way that honors him. We pray in a way that pleases him. We pray according to the desires and the will of Jesus. And if you're unclear on the will of Jesus, guess what you should do? Just read your Bible. Because when you read and pray scripture, guess what you're doing? Automatically, you're praying in Jesus' name. You're praying God's word right back to him. But praying in Jesus' name also means something else. It means this. Let me back up real quick. Because I'd say this, very often when we approach prayer, we think the priority is trying to change the will of God. If somehow, some way through my words and my prayer, I can twist God's arm and force him to honor my request. But do you see what Jesus is saying? When our mindset is we should pray in Jesus' name, what is being changed? Is it God's will? No, it's actually our will. And our, our desires and our values are actually being shaped and formed into God's will. Here's the second thing it means to pray in Jesus' name. It means we pray under the authority of Jesus. We pray under the authority of Jesus. Because here's what we're saying. When I come before God, when I stand in his presence, when I ask him for stuff in prayer, I'm not praying in my name. Do you get that? Because if I approach God in my name, I'm saying, God, look at my life. Look at my morality. Look at my obedience. Look at my commitment to my church and the word. God, honor me because of what I've done. That's what it would look like to approach God according to Ben's name. But do you see what we do when we come to God in Jesus' name? We say, God, the only reason I can come into your presence My boldness, my confidence, my access to you comes not through me and my righteousness. No, I depend on the righteousness of Jesus. God, I come to you in the name of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So what John is emphasizing right here is that prayer has great power and it's an amazing privilege. And just like most things that give us power and privilege, there's also a responsibility that comes with that. And that's what John addresses in the next couple verses. He says, prayer has an amazing power, but there's also a sobering responsibility that comes with us. Because if you remember, the whole book of 1 John is about testing true, authentic belief. And one of the tests of a true Christian is that you love one another that you demonstrate your faith in Jesus by loving other people. And John is saying right here, one of the clearest, most practicable, tangible ways that you can demonstrate and prove your love for others is that you what? That you pray for people. That you don't just pray for yourself. That you don't just pray for your family. You pray for others. And specifically, John says, we have a responsibility to pray for those who are struggling and fighting sin. And this is really practical. Because I'd say this, if you've been in the church 
for more than a couple years, if you've been walking with God faithfully over time, I guarantee that you have a relationship with someone who's left the church. You've probably seen somebody go astray, someone who's drifted away from Christ, someone who's walked away from the faith. And do you see what John's solution is? Do you see what John is calling us to do? He's saying, pray for these people. Intercede on behalf of these people. And unfortunately, the church often gets it, get it, gets it twisted. Because here's what the church does oftentimes, is we see somebody who's struggling in sin, and instead of talking to God, which is prayer, what do we do? We talk to others, which is gossip. And so the biblical method is, is pretty clear. John says if you see somebody who's in sin, the first person you talk to is to God, not to others. And the second person you go to is that person, and you restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6.1 says this, if anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual or who have the Holy Spirit should restore them with the spirit of gentleness. This is what John is saying. If you see somebody who's in sin, the first person you talk to is God, and then you approach that person. Let's move on to verses 16 and 17. This is where it gets a little complicated, gets a little confusing. This is why Pastor Henley, all right, didn't want to preach this sermon, all right? He pushed it off to me, all right? Probably the least intellectual guy in this room, all right? But I'm going to take a stab at it. Here's what you got to keep in mind. Because John starts talking about sins that lead to death and don't lead to death. Here's how you need to approach verse 16 and 17. John is giving some very specific pastoral insight and wisdom to his congregation. Now remember the whole book of 1 John. Remember that John has been dealing with people who've left his church. And some of these people happen to be false teachers. If you go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 19, it says this. John says this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And in verse 23, he says this. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So here's what I believe is that verse 16 and 17, they're like a footnote. They're like an asterisk. And John has already given us this principle that we should pray for those who are struggling with sin. But then he remembers in this specific congregation, there has not only been people who've drifted away from Jesus, there have been people who have outright rejected Jesus. And John is speaking to his original audience. He's speaking to his congregation. And so chapter 2 verse 19 tells us, that if we have been truly saved, we'll never abandon Jesus. But at the same time, John's church has seen people leave. He's seen members abandon their vows. He's seen, they've seen people who belong to the church, but they didn't belong to Jesus Christ. These are people who lacked true, genuine faith. And Andrew mentioned it last week, but there was a particular type of person within this group. He called them proto-gnostics. But these are people who are false teachers. John actually says that some of these men had the spirit of the Antichrist. Here's what you need to know. These are men, these are individuals who have deliberately rejected Jesus Christ. And so really what first verse 16 and 17 is, this is Pastor John giving very insightful, 
advice and wisdom and counsel to his church. Because his church is coming to him and they're saying, John, we know we should pray for people who are struggling with sin. What about this group? What about these people who have outright, deliberately left our church and rejected Jesus? And so John mentions that these people have committed a sin that leads to death. Now, more than likely, this phrase, sin that leads to death, was a well-known, easily understood phrase in this culture. Unfortunately, it's not today. But more than likely, what John means and what John is describing is apostasy, or what Jesus would describe as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Basically, it's this. It is a persistent, flagrant, decisive rejection of Jesus. So here's what you got to understand. Christians, we commit all types of sin. Do we not? I mean, just read the Old Testament. Just examine your life. You encounter men like Abraham and Moses and David and Peter. These are men who lied and cheated and deceived and murdered and committed adultery. And yet, none of these men committed a sin that led to death. Because they did not engage in unrepentant sin as a lifestyle. Eventually, each of these men reached a point where they hated their sin and they repented. And so a sin that leads to death is a wide-eyed rebellion. It is a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. And Christians, true believers, don't sin like that. Are you with me? So if you're sitting here and you're nervous and you're anxious because I mentioned the sin that leads to death, and you're asking yourself, have I committed this sin? What's the answer? No, because you're alive, and right here, right now, today, you have the opportunity to repent and to trust in Jesus. And so do you see what John is saying? He is not commanding us not to pray for these people. There's no command right here. He is simply giving permission to his congregation, to his church. He's saying, you don't have to keep praying for these people. You don't have to continue interceding for these people who have rejected Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Are y'all with me? And look, this is really, really insightful advice. Because I'll just say this, the longer you've been in the church, specifically the longer you've been in leadership or ministry, Unfortunately, and it's heartbreaking, you will encounter people who walk away from the faith. And it's really confusing and it's really disheartening. I can remember one of the first guys that I thought I led to faith on this campus. I discipled him for two years. I, I served him. I helped him. I met with him consistently. I tried to build him up emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially. I mean, my family came around him. We did everything we could to support and love this guy. And he was a leader in our ministry for years. But unfortunately, when graduation came and he left Carrollton and he moved on, he walked away from the faith. And I'll just say, this is a guy I talked to on a daily basis for two years, and I've not interacted with him one time over the past four years. He won't return my text messages, my phone calls. The little bit of interaction I have with him is over social media. And every post, every picture, every tweet that he puts out in the world, it's antagonistic. And he's actually rejected Jesus. And it's not that he's drifted away. He is actually vocal in his opposition to the church, to my ministry, 
into Jesus Christ. And so what John is giving me is not only permission to grieve, but also permission to say, look, Ben, you don't have to keep chasing this guy. You can focus on the men and the women at West Georgia today who love Jesus and want to grow. He's simply giving me permission to move on to other people. And so here's what I'd say. Even Jesus, I I read this other day, that even Jesus served with a Judas and a Peter. You ever thought about that? Even Jesus discipled a Judas and a Peter. And if Jesus experienced both denial and betrayal, that means we will too. And that's why John gives us this pastoral advice. Now, let me just give you two cautions, two quick cautions. The first is this. Be careful to label people as committing the sin that leads to death. Because I'd just say this. I'd point to Peter. Well, what about Peter? Do you remember the story of Peter? The day before Jesus is crucified, Peter bangs his chest and he says, Jesus, I'll never desert you. And the very next day, when Jesus is wrongfully accused, led to the courtroom, what does Peter do? He denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. In that moment, you would be tempted to believe that Peter had committed what? The sin that leads to death. There was nothing in his life, at least that night, that pointed to true saving faith. But here's what's really interesting. Jesus, after his death and resurrection, comes to Peter, and he restores Peter, and he tells Peter this in Luke twenty-two thirty-one through 32. This is a great picture of what we're talking about right here. He says, Peter, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Why did Peter endure? Why did Peter's faith not fail? Because Jesus prayed for him. So here's the second caution. Don't focus on the exception and miss the main point. Don't focus on the exception and miss the main point. What is the main point that I started about five minutes ago? It was a really simple truth, but God answers what? Prayer. Don't forget that. That's what John is banging his fist on the table and saying, God answers prayer. Look, prayer is hard enough on its own, am I right? And and we don't need anything else removing our motivation not to pray. And so just remember this, that God answers prayer. And this verse says that he hears whatever we ask and God will give life. And the main point was this, is if we ask whatever we want in Jesus' name, he will do it. My question for you is this, what is, more, is there anything more in line than praying in Jesus? In the, is there anything more in line than praying for those who are dealing and struggling with sin than this? I still got that wrong. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. But we should pray for Christians who are dealing with sin because there is nothing more in line with Jesus' name. That's what I'm trying to say. Because Jesus, all right, pursues those who are in sin. This is an amazing promise, amazing truth that we have right here. So that's it. The second thing we have to know is that God answers prayer. Point number three. Third thing we have to know is that we don't keep on sinning. Verse 18 says this, everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning. 
So once again, this is not new information in the book of 1 John. John is emphasizing the doctrine of regeneration. He's saying we've been born again. He's saying that you're a, he's saying that you're a new person. And you have a new mind. And you have a new heart. And it should lead to new behavior. And so John is clarifying once again that there's two types of sin. There's two ways that we can sin. And as Christians, we may stumble and fall. But we'll never stay in our sin. Do you see the difference? There's a sin that does not lead to death. That's when we stumble and fall. And there's a sin that leads to death. And that's willful, determined, unrepentant sin. And yes, as believers, we may stumble, but we don't stay in our sin. We may fall, but we get back up. Eventually, we, re- we reach a point where we experience conviction, and we repent, and we ask for forgiveness. So the question is, where does this confidence come from? How, how can I be so sure? How can I be so confident that I won't keep on sinning? Well, verse 18 says what? That God protects you. That God protects you, and evil does not touch you. Well, what does that mean? Because when I watch the news, and when I examine my life, and when I think about the world we live in, it sure seems like evil is touching a whole lot of our lives. Am I right? So you got to get really specific with what this word touch means. And it doesn't mean a little touch, a little poke. Really, the word touch, it means to hold. It means to grab. It means to lock your arms and wrap your arms around something. All right? If you're from like deep South Georgia, we're talking about wrestling right here. You know what I'm saying? All right, and I'm one of four. I got two other brothers, all right? And if there's something you do a lot of growing up as brothers is you wrestle, right? I mean, I've gotten in so many fights not only protecting my brothers, but I've gotten even, even more fights with my brothers. And this is usually how it went. I'm the oldest brother, but I'm not the biggest brother. And so I had to be savvy, right? I had to be smart, and I had to know the big brother tricks and wrestling. And here's what I figured out. All right? I never wrestled, but, but, but I learned something, all right, called the, uh, what's it called? The full Nelson. You guys know about that, all right? Because if you can slip your arms under their shoulders and bring them around, all right, right behind the neck, all right, you got total control. And I would slip the half, the, the full Nelson on my brother's. All right, and at that point, you can make them do anything. All right, you dominated them. You've crushed them. You've got total control. They can cry uncle, right? They can kiss the carpet. All right, whatever you want. And that's what John is describing when he uses the word touch. He's talking about a grip, a grasp, both arms, a full Nelson. And he's saying evil cannot grasp you. It cannot hold you down. It cannot control you. And really, John... What he's describing right here is very similar to what Andrew mentioned earlier in the life of Job. You ever heard that story before? Job was a righteous man. He was a God-fearer. And at one point in Job's life, Satan actually approaches God, and he says, God, I want to afflict Job. I I, want to let him have it. And God allows him, but he says there is a hedge of protection around Job. In other words, he says, I will protect Job from evil. And so the the fact that evil will not touch us does not mean that adversity will not touch us. Those are two different things because immediately Job is afflicted and he loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses his prosperity. He loses his family. 
But even then, the enemy cannot touch him because he never loses his soul. That's what John is describing. He's saying, look, Satan, evil may affect your bank accounts, may affect your health and your relationships, but it cannot choke you out because nothing can separate us from the love of God. A a couple years ago, I was walking our dog, and this is when we lived over by the high school, and and there's the Longview Park, and I was walking around that loop, and at at that time, our dog was a little puppy. And in one of the corners of that park, there's a dog park, big high fence, and people will just let their dogs out to roam and play. And we were rounding that corner. I've got a little puppy named Wespy. And Wespy looked up, and there was this big old Rottweiler, okay, in that cage. And this was a mean-looking dog, all right? I mean, I mean this dog, it, like, made me feel a little scared. And, and I was dragging our puppy at this point because he was terrified. And this dog was barking. He was growling. He was just foaming at the mouth. I mean, this was the most intense-looking rot I'd ever seen. But here's the thing. I kept on moving because here's what I knew. There's a fence, right? There's a really tall fence. There's a really big fence. My puppy did not understand the power of the fence. Well, John is saying something very similar. He's saying, look, believers, brothers and sisters, Satan may growl. Satan may bare his teeth. He may bark. He may drool. He may spit at you, but you are protected from evil because you have a fence Because you are secure and you're safe, not because of your strength, not because of your knowledge, not because of your discipline. We are protected by God. Our safety and security is from Jesus. So point number three, we know that we don't keep on sinning. Fourth point, what's the fourth thing we know? Is that we belong to God. Verse 19 says this, is that we are from God. We've hammered this point time and time and time again. This is the doctrine of adoption. John is reminding us once again that if you've trusted in Jesus, you're a child of God. And he's actually making a a contrast in this verse. He's saying either you're under the influence and power of God or of evil. In verse 19, he says that the word, the world, lies in the power of the evil one. Meaning this is that our culture, our society, even our media is under the grasp of sin. So do you understand where John is going? He's saying not only does Jesus protect you from evil, not only does Jesus protect you from the enemy, he also protects you from your own flesh, your own sinful desires and longing. He even protects you from the evil in the world, the temptation out there. So now it's time for our fifth and final point. The final thing that we have to know is this, is that Jesus has come. Jesus has come. Verse 20 says this, the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding. So here's what you have to remember. First John begins with what? John is talking about what? More specifically who? Jesus. First John ends and John is talking about who? He's talking about Jesus. The point is this, brothers and sisters, your life should start and end with Jesus. And there's a reason for that. Because according to John, Jesus is true. John repeats this word three times in the final verse. He says, Jesus is true, Jesus is true, Jesus is true. Meaning this, Jesus is authentic. He's real. He's genuine. He's not false. 
Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the truth to everything we have to know in this sermon. How do we know that we have eternal life? Because of Jesus. How do we know that God answers prayer? Because of Jesus. How do we know that we won't keep on sinning? Because of Jesus. And how do we know that we belong to God? Because of the truth, the true Jesus. And so the whole book of John is a test of true belief. It's designed to be a mirror so that we can examine, should we, do we have assurance of our salvation? So listener, reader, you should examine yourself and ask yourself, do I have belief? Have I trusted in Jesus? Do I love other people? Am I obeying and following Christ? The reality is, if you're not living and obeying and following Christ, it's because you're not worshiping Christ. You're worshiping something else. And John says that you're worshiping an idol. This is why he ends the letter saying, keep yourself free from idols. Do you understand this? Is that keeping yourself from an idol is just another way, a roundabout way of saying worship Jesus. Do you get that? John is saying the same thing because an idol is the opposite of Christ. If Jesus is truth, then what is an idol? An idol is false. Because Jesus is true and he gives life. And idols are false. They're counterfeit and they will take your life. See, idols promise life, but they lead to death. Only Jesus promises us life, but takes our death. And so what I've outlined in this sermon this morning are, are five benefits, five things you have to know, five things you need to remember in your daily walk with God. But we don't need to forget not only these benefits, we also need to remember the cost, the payment, the sacrifice that secured these benefits because a great gift always comes at a great price. And brothers and sisters, I've outlined five amazing Incredible benefits and rewards. Therefore, there must have been an even greater sacrifice. So think about it this way. In order for us to get eternal life, what did Jesus have to do? He had to take on death. In order for us to receive answers for our prayers, what did Jesus do? Well, he actually had a prayer denied when he said, Father, take this cup from me. We receive the benefit of not living in sin only because Jesus became sin on our behalf. We belong to God because on the cross, for a moment in time, Jesus was denied by the Father. And brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus has come. This is what we must understand. These are the five things we must know. It's the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And look, this is where John ends. This is his grand finale. It's simply Jesus Christ. And this, this is where our life begins. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you for the book of 1 John. We thank you that we have a real, practical book that helps us examine our own faith and our own walk with you. Lord, I do pray for the people in this room as they've read and listened and studied, who maybe for the first time in their life, they realize they lack assurance because they're not truly saved. They don't know you. 
They worship idols, and they don't worship you. We've got to pray for those people. Today would be the day of their salvation. They would see your sacrifice. They would see the cost that you would pay, and they would trust in you and receive these rewards. I pray for the rest of us that we would remember, that we would never forget these simple, basic Sunday school truths. God, will we daily be impacted and influenced by the fact that we have eternal life, that you hear our prayers, and that the Son of God has come and he has brought us life. Lord, I pray that those truths would drive and influence our lives. We place your name, amen.